Hello, I'm Dr. Lisa Belisle, and this is Radio Maine. Today I have in the studio with me Dr. Jen Palminteri, who is a fellow physician and also um, a fellow art lover, I would say. New art lover. I feel like I'm just sort of coming into it after making some new friends that know a lot about art, which has made it much easier. Well, to be honest with you, that is how I became an art lover myself, is through friends. So um, so welcome to the crowd, I guess. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me. So that's a good thing. Um, you're also a fellow Maine woman. Yes. I'm, I was born in Alfred, so I lived there and left for training and then came back. And uh, I've been in Maine sort of for my adult life, so it's been nice. I feel like I'm like firmly the community and I see patients that I know and families that I know and their kids sometimes. And so it's nice. So that's interesting. If you're from Alfred and where do you practice? In Portland. In Portland. But you still draw people from the southern part of the state? Yeah, we. I do pulmonary disease and critical care medicine. So um, for kind of complex disease, they tend to travel a little northward for that. Um, so and I, I don't know, they sort of know my parents and they're like, Jenny's a pulmonologist. We'll go see her. So that's been nice to see my parents' friends and <laughs> all that. Uh, do you ever find it to be a mixed blessing? Sometimes. I guess if there's sad news, it's a little hard. Oh, yeah. Um, but that happens rarely, so most of the time it's pretty good. Yeah. Well, I only ask this because, of course, you know my father. I do. And <laughs> yes, I did rotations with him at, um, in his practice on um, India Street. Yes. It's a long time ago at this yeah. point. But I was going to say a little while ago. A little bit, a yeah. Okay. I, I, might have even, I was a medical student at that point. so Okay. That was like in early 2000s. Okay. So. And where did you go to medical school? Vermont. Right. So same. Yeah. Yes. I also did rotations on DSP. <laughs> yeah. I did my residency there. I felt the same path. Yeah, exactly. And the reason I ask about the, um, the mixed blessing thing is I, I find that, you know, everybody in at least one part of the state knows my dad as a family doctor of he is Almost a fixture. 50 years. He is a fixture. <laughs> and then on top of that, I have uh, two sisters who are in medicine, a brother-in-law. That's like, you got to be well-behaved. You know, you can't not be well-behaved if you practice in the state where you grew up and your parents still live. Especially if your last name is Palmentary. Yeah. Yeah. You need to sort of, you stick out around That's, here. Yeah. There's if, not many of us. If it was like Brown or Taylor or something like that, you'd you be better fade. off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes, Palmentary. Yeah. So how, uh, how did your parents come to live in the Alfred region? They're both from sort of the New York City region, and um, they started at St. Francis College, which is now UNE. Uh, my dad was a year older than my mom, and they met there. Oh, yeah. fascinating. Yeah, came to Maine. And my dad, I don't know, he's not much of a city boy, to be honest, so he sort of likes space and acreage between him and his neighbors and that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, they've, we've been here ever since. So what, what do your parents do? Uh, my mom was a nurse. Actually, she was a critical care nurse. And uh, my dad worked in television for a long time, and then has actually we owned a Pat's Pizza for a while, um, and now they're kind of retired, watching grandchildren. Oh, well, that's not a bad pastime. You know, they're yeah, they're good at it. Yeah. How did you end up going into medicine? I mean, aside from the fact that your mother was a nurse. Yeah, my um, I have an uncle who's an OBGYN, so there was like one other physician in the family, but it was actually this strange thing. I was I remember like being in physics class as a senior and people were like going around the table and like talking about what they were going to be and I remember the words I think I might be a doctor come out of my mouth but I quite literally 
don't remember thinking about it before then, which feels really strange. Like, why did I just decide on it? And then as you know, you sort of move through and before you know it, you're a resident. You're like, how did I get here? But um, I don't know. I, I love science and it felt kind of natural. And I, don't know, I just really, I got into it sort of, I wasn't pre-med when I went into college. I was a history major and then I kind of added it on second year. So it was great. I don't know. I feel I'm, I'm thankful that it sort of happened to me, I guess, because I think it is the right job for me. I don't know. I sort of feel like my persona is that of a person who like wants to be a doctor. I'm like one of those people who likes to kind of give out medical advice and stuff, which you probably shouldn't do to be honest. But um, I, I don't know. I just, I like the mystery of like why somebody's sick and trying to figure out how to make them better and not hurt them at the same time. And um, yeah, I don't know. I just, and I'm very grateful that I found pulmonary critical care because I think that like fits my personality really well. Pulmonology is, I don't know, lung disease is very interesting and it's like, it interacts with like a lot of different specialties like cardiology and infectious disease and rheumatology. And so I don't know. I get to like talk to all different specialists all the times and all the time. And patients who are short of breath are like, it's very unpleasant to be short of breath. And so when you can help them, it like really makes a big difference. You know, it's like, it's a disease that they definitely feel right. Because there are a lot of diseases in medicine that you don't, you know, if you have high blood pressure and your doctor tells you, and then you have to go on a blood pressure medicine, you're like, I didn't even know I had high blood pressure. It wasn't bothering me at all. And now I'm on a new medicine and I'm not happy about it. But like, Usually when I add medicines, I make them feel better. So that's nice. Well, especially the critical care piece. Yeah. I mean, people really feel bad by the time they see you as a critical care specialist. Yeah. That's that's very sad, especially like during COVID was awful. I mean, early on, we didn't have that many COVID cases here, but it was, I mean, it was a time when like we were dealing with a new disease. We didn't know exactly what was going on and, you know, there's... In critical care, there you know you're always trying to balance the thing that you're doing to the patient um, with the intention to help them versus hurt them, right? So even just a ventilator, you know the process of breathing that you and I are doing right now, where we pull air in and push air out as we breathe on our own, is very different from a ventilator pushing air into you. And if you don't need a breathing machine, you shouldn't be on one, obviously. But like. You know, early on in COVID, we were intubating people when they were on a couple of liters of oxygen. And um, I don't know, we were probably hurting people early on because they probably didn't need them. Um, but we're pretty good at it now. <laughs> we know how to take care of people with COVID, which is nice. Um, and the cases in the ICU are pretty low. Even the people that are listed as being the ICU aren't sick usually with COVID as much as they're sick with some other disease and they happen to have COVID. So sometimes those uh, statistics can be misleading, I think, a little. Yeah, I know in our hospital system, we have a fair number of people who come in with something else. We test them. They have COVID, but that is not why they came into the hospital in the first place. Right. You broke your hip. Exactly. And you happen to have COVID also. Right, Yeah. right. Which is nice because actually a fair number of people have also been vaccinated. Sadly, they still have COVID, but they the symptoms are not nearly as bad, if, if any at all, really. Right. I mean, at this point, it's pretty hard to find somebody who's never had COVID. I feel like everybody's had it. I know that's true. Yeah. Yeah. But um, for those people who had some protection on board, they pretty much do pretty well. So thankfully. And... 
I know that there is a different way, not to get too technical, but I'm sure. kind of fascinated, so I'm yeah. just going to ask you for selfish reasons, <laughs> yeah. but um, I know that we actually have done different things for patients who have COVID with regard to their lungs. We aren't prescribing exactly the same things that we would for other lung diseases. We aren't doing steroids as quickly, for example. Right. If you come into the hospital with COVID, um, we've got drugs like remdesivir, which sort of act as antivirals, you know, like... Um, Tamiflu for the flu. Um, and then we tend to give steroids to those people early on if we're worried about significant lung disease. And then for people who unfortunately don't make antibodies or have never been vaccinated, we can potentially give them antibodies if it's appropriate. Um, and then there's drugs like Paxlovid, which it's kind of amazing, old, you know, AIDS drugs being renewed. Um, that's really been like um, a good agent for people to get and sort of minimize symptoms. So, uh, yeah, it's it, the way that we have sort of figured out what drugs work and what drugs don't work so quickly has been like, a, has been amazing because it, it was needed. I mean, we were at risk of hurting people with drugs that weren't helpful. So thank God they did the research quickly. Yeah. And are, are they still doing the thing where they rotate the patients? Yeah. I mean, that's that also is, fascinating, right? It is. It's crazy. That is, um, so they've done studies for years looking at taking patients who have a disease called ARDS, which is basically like a dense kind of pneumonia picture in your chest. And those, the pneumonia is always in the back. And if you can rotate the patient and put them on their belly, um, you can help to improve their oxygen levels, and it actually improves survival. And so we used to do this with patients that were on ventilators, and we'd flip them over and put them on their bellies. But it got to the point in the hospital where even people who were just sick with COVID but not in, you know, on a breathing machine, we had them sleep on their bellies intentionally. <laughs> and we would see people get better. It was pretty amazing. And that is probably just the physiology of kind of the way that we breathe and where gravity sends the blood in the lungs and things like that. So what you're describing is interesting, though, because I think this this idea that we we kind of had to go back to some very basic physiology, some basic microbiology to understand something floating around that was new to us um, and think about things in a really different way. I mean, I think that that was a little at least I, I'm on the outpatient side as a physician, but I found it kind of difficult, strange. It felt very risky. I felt like I was doing my own version of medical doom scrolling, like just like, hey, who knows stuff? Who knows stuff? I need to figure this out. I think that was that was the thing that was so unsettling in the very beginning of COVID because there would be groups of physicians or, um, you know, different areas of the country where there was a lot of COVID. And so there's something to be said for experience, right? And if those physicians were doing things and having good outcomes before we had real data, we started to sort of take their considerations, like intubating people early or, um, you know, uh, medications like uh, hydroxychloroquine were initially started for people and um, don't give anybody steroids. That was early on the recommendation. So it was kind of it was crazy how things like were changing so quickly depending on what people's individual experiences were. Um, so. How much um, telemedicine do you do? I do a little bit. I have some patients for whom leaving, they have such significant lung disease that leaving the house to come to the visit like 
puts them down for two days. And so I tend to do telehealth visits for those people. And um, I can make a lot of like good decisions based on kind of what the patient looks like on camera, even without listening to their lungs. Like I can, and you know, their symptoms and everything. So I could, I can do that for some people. I think for other diseases, it's harder. Um, But it really saves those patients from like feeling miserable for a couple, because it's just, it's so much work. They either, you know, they're pretty sedentary or they get terribly short of breath. And so the process of walking from the parking lot, even to the office is a lot. So especially in the wintertime in Maine, which there is a lot of winter. So I think I'm, I'm still doing telehealth for those people. I mean, personally, I found that there were situations that I thought would be great for telehealth that turned out maybe not to be so great, but other situations I hadn't even really thought about. And then I was like, wow, this is great. I hope we never go back because it is so good for the patients and their families. It is. Yep. And you can get the whole family on the Zoom call. Yeah. It worked for some people. It worked out really well. Yeah. I mean, it caused me to think a lot about access. You know, we've, we talk about social determinants of health, of course, you know. Just you don't have enough food to eat, you don't have um, transportation. But we're talking about, I mean, I think you and I probably have some overlap of patients mm-hmm. that you they need to get in a wheelchair, which means they need a wheelchair van or they have to have their own wheelchair van. And then it's you've got ice on the sidewalk and sometimes the sidewalks don't have cuts. And, and I think that I always knew that that was out there, but I think when COVID came along, it really caused me to think like, why? Why do we make people not all of whom really need to come into the office, come in and see us when we can do so much of it remotely. We can. And even just talking to people about their disease, like maybe you spend less of the visit on the exam and more about the talking and the history and what they're feeling and their families can chime in and you can even potentially see kind of where they live. And I think that's helpful. Um, I think that has been like pretty helpful. I was definitely doing more telehealth like during the middle of the pandemic there. I mean, my patients were very nervous about coming to the office and we were also nervous. I think it was hard if somebody had like an upper respiratory infection. I mean, back when you couldn't even get a test, we were like, we can't come into the office. We're going to have to do this over the phone. Um, So, and people are on immunosuppressants and they have cancer and you just don't want them getting exposed. Yeah, and you raise a great point about really seeing where people live. I mean, mm-hmm. when you see when there's a camera, and sometimes it's just somebody holding up their cell phone, or you know, they're holding up the iPad for their grandmother or whatever. Yeah. And you see that the, when you talk about social determinants of health, these are real issues. These are huge problems. You know, people. I was seeing people kind of shoved into their you know mobile home with like two bedrooms, but twelve people living there, kind of thing. And you know, you could see like black mold and like just horrible things that I think are so theoretical, and they can tell you this is what's going on. But when you actually see that, or in my case, sadly enough, when you actually see a patient who is smoking on the camera with me, I was like, oh well. I don't need to ask whether he's quit because he hasn't, but I'm not going to, I'll say, can I help you with any resources? Something like that. But I think for me, it just, it really hit me like this is, it's not that it was fake before, but it more like, this is real. This is real stuff that real people are really dealing with. And somehow we need to figure this out a little bit better. Right. And I think that the, you know, sort of improving your health sometimes comes along with improving your life, which um, is not possible for everybody. There's like a lot of poverty in Maine and some people don't even have Wi-Fi and they can't have to do phone calls instead. And, um, you know, trying to 
help them manage, you know, nicotine addiction when there are all these other stressors. You sometimes have to modify your advice to match what the patient is even like kind of capable of doing. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's such an interesting thing because I, I think you're right. It's nicotine addiction. It's not like you are a smoker wagging my finger at you. It is an addiction and it is related to stress. And it's, you know, what are you going to have to navigate without the help of this, this product, this way that you're medicating your life when we take it away from you? So I think being able to see it in a much more compassionate way while simultaneously recognizing like, okay, this is lung disease and we really can't have you smoking. It's like having to figure out how to communicate that with the patients. Yeah. And to make it sort of shame free, I think, because for people who have been smoking for 50 years, I mean, they are terribly addicted. They, I mean, the people that can't get down to less than a pack a day without having like terrible withdrawal symptoms, I mean, trying to quit smoking under those circumstances, cold turkey, certainly, which is is very hard. Um, I mean, their brains are like so addicted. They feel they feel physically terrible when they try and quit. And their brain is also starved of dopamine and all sorts of other reward chemicals. And they feel terrible about themselves. I mean, it's just, it's awful. So um, if you can, I don't know, try and help them with like nicotine replacement and working on cutting back and just kind of, you know, work on doing your best. And I feel like that's sometimes the best way to help people to just, because it, I think they feel bad enough about it already. Right. (laughs) And don't need to make them feel worse. Yeah. I mean, we used to think, oh, it's all about education of people just, if they know that smoking is bad for them, they will stop. I I don't know whoever thought that was the answer (laughs) because when you keep hitting people over the head with the same message in a really judgmental way, it doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't really work. They no. don't really soften. You know, it's no. like, yeah, I got that. I'm not stupid. I know that smoking is bad. They know. Yeah, it's been 20, 30 years of that message. And I mean, going back to the 60s when that message really started. So um, clearly there's another driver for why they're continuing to smoke. And that's like a chemical dependency. It's like people get chemically dependent to other things. And it's sad. You know, as I'm, I'm talking to you, I'm thinking about when I started in medicine a little bit longer ago than you did, um, but I'll just say not that long ago. Let's just say that. It's not true, but because I have a daughter who um, was born my last year of medical school, and she's 26, so that tells you something. So, uh, But I do remember back in the day that we, I think as a profession, we did tend to be more judgmental and a little bit less compassionate. And I think that, you know, in family medicine, we tried to be kind of the interface but now I'm seeing more and more people who go into specialty medicine that they're not leaving it to the family medicine doctors to be the interface. They want to be there with the patients present. They want to be communicating the message themselves. And I've really appreciated that. I've really appreciated that we're all on the same team. We all speak the same kind of language of wellness. And so it's not getting kind of funneled down the road back to primary care. So thank you for that. Oh, I can't even imagine how busy primary care doctors' offices are with all of the requirements for all of the, you know, sort of various metrics one has to meet to then be like, oh, I'll turf your COPD back to your primary care doctor also (laughs) feels a little bad. Um, I think I could probably help out with that. That probably would be in my purview. So um, I don't know. I like to sort of take ownership of those things and do them myself. You know, I tell my patients, if you are having an asthma attack or your COPD is acting up, call here. 
You know, you don't have to call your primary care doctor. You can call here. We have somebody on call all the time. We can take care of you, you know, and then I can keep track of when you were sick so that I know whether or not I should change your medicines or do something else or get some imaging. Um, so, I don't know, I like to sort of, I don't know, maybe I'm a little bit of a control freak. I like to know what's going on. <laughs> Well, and I appreciate that. And I know that there are some primary care doctors who are like, no, I want to manage everything. <laughs> yeah. I, I, am not, I am not that way. And in part because you're right, it's very complex. And we know so much more about so many more things than we once did that I'm like, hey, listen, I am happy to be on your team with you, Mr. or Mrs. or Ms. patient. And also, I'm going to have this other person on the team with me as well. And so if we can all just be clear about who's doing what and just kind of be open to the communication, mm-hmm. I think it's really helpful. I think it is too. And the patients are very motivated for their primary doctors to know. That is pretty universal, especially as they get older. Like patients who are in their like 60s and 70s and 80s are, are very concerned that maybe, you know, like I just want to make sure that you know, my physician, my primary care doctor is getting my records and will they get a copy of that CAT scan and will they get this? I just want them to know what's going on. So I think they still view them very much as like being the center of the of the wheel, um, which I think is really important because, I mean, you're prescribing the majority of the medicines and medications interact and um, yeah, so that's pretty important. I'm glad to know you're on our team. I am, I yeah. am. And, and I... I have been here for a while, so I feel like I know a lot of the primary care doctors in town, so it's very easy to just contact them. And it's, I don't know, there's something about the efficiency of, like, one doctor just calling another doctor and fixing the problem in five minutes is amazing. And instead of, like, passing notes back and forth or uh, communicating through your nurses or your medical assistants, it's like, I don't know, that I think that, like, important professional relationship and, like, that communication is still... It's incredibly valuable. So I like to do it, and I like it when I get called. <laughs> so. See, and that's, that's also great to hear because I, that is the way it used to be. Yeah. I mean, I, I know we have a range of providers now that are practitioners that are not doctors, but when we used to have, we'll just call it the doctor's lounge because that is what it used to be called. Yeah. And that is how people interacted. You know, you talk to the person who was in the hospital taking care of your patient, and you talk to the primary care doctor who was then at a family doctor or a general, a GP, you know, and then we had all these wonderful electronic health records that I'm going to call them wonderful because they do have their benefits. They do. But I think that created this weird digital barrier and then it took away all the human. And now you've got like, all I have on the other side is like a name I can send a task to or an electronic health message to. And I really appreciate when I could do the same thing and be like, okay, I know Jen. So <laughs> yeah. text. Okay, can you give me a call? I have this patient. I just have a question. Give a call. That way I don't have to send a patient in for a consult. It's going to take three months, yeah. you know. Like, So how do we make that happen more? That's my question to you. How do we actually get that to be more the case? I actually think that it's, um, it sounds terrible, but it's like social events again. You know what I mean? Like medical staff meetings and like places where, you know, providers like get together again and like, get introduced face-to-face to people and those kinds of things because there's less of that. People are very busy, and then it's kind of perceived as like an add-on to work sometimes. Um, so I think that's really important because, I don't know, I was the house staff president at Maine Medical Center when I was a resident, and my job was basically to plan parties. But it just me I don't know, if you're calling for a consult, you're essentially calling and asking somebody to do work for you, right? That's just, if you like break it down to the bare minimum, that's what it is. But it's somebody 
you know, asking for your help on a topic that they consider that you have some expertise in. And that's like what you should do. And if you know that person already, because you were at a party with them three weeks earlier and you met them there, then it's a lot easier to be like, oh, hey, Lisa, yeah, sure. Oh, sure. I'll come down and see her. Sounds fine. You know, it just like changes the interaction. So I don't know. I think that those things are important and we probably should do more of them. So I'm always a fan of parties. Parties. Yes. Yeah, more social. Be nicer to each other. You know, not. Yeah, I think that would help. If we all like spent a little bit more time together outside of work, maybe it's easy when your friends are calling you, you're like, sure, Michelle, I'll come down. No problem. You know, friends in the ER. But if you like don't know people, sometimes you're like, yeah, I'll be down. You know, it's just it's sort of like the way that you talk to people, I think. Yeah, that's really true. So that's how we'll fix it. More parties Always. for doctors and nurse practitioners. <laughs> and and levels. Everybody out there, we're going to bring you to our party. We're <laughs> yeah, going exactly. to know each other once again. Yeah. Maybe know what somebody looks like by face and not just by name. Yeah. That would be nice. And at some point when the masks come down, we actually will know what their full oh my face gosh, looks that like. has been, I'm, I mean, I'm terrible with faces to begin Same. with. And then you put masks on everybody for two years and now I'm supposed to know what they look like I again. Know. It's been brutal. But Yeah. No, I, 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 I feel that. I, I took a new <laughs> job and then COVID hit like within weeks and I was like, oh, okay. So Shoot. someday when the masks come off, I'll be like, wait, do I know you? Yes. You and I have been talking for the last... Three years. It's crazy. This is what I look like. I know. So, it feels weird to not have a mask on sometimes. I know. I know. It's very true. Mm-hmm. So we've been talking a lot about medicine. Mm. And, and thank you for those of you who are listening or watching to us go on and on about one of our passions, which is medicine. Um, I appreciate that people who are listening or watching are interested in this because I know I am, selfishly. But the other thing that I'm interested in is your intersection with art. And, you know, you mentioned that it was really through knowing people who knew art and you're relatively new to the art game. So art was not woven through your kind of educational life as you were going through. No, I didn't. I mean, I didn't take a lot or I didn't take any, what I remember as being like any sort of like artistic or art history courses in college or anything like that. I I remember being in a music class once, but it, it was like as a requirement, I think. Um, and I've always kind of struggled with, like I was buying, you know, prints at Target and I was, you know, and I just, there was nothing that I, I was anxious about finding art that I both liked and was going to like fit a style that I wanted to match my home. And this, for whatever reason, like caused me anxiety to the point where when I like redid my condo, I wallpapered the entire like main space thinking that it would decrease the amount of art that I had to buy. I mean, this was on the list of the reasons why I was getting wallpaper. I do love wallpaper, but I was like, oh, well, if I get more wallpaper, I won't have to buy as much art. And then um, COVID happened and you're in your home a lot and there is not much on the walls except for your wallpaper. And it felt unfinished all the time. Um, And I met Emma and I went to one of her gallery openings. And while I was there, I saw a piece by Dietland and I loved it. And I told Emma that I wanted to get it. And then I heard Dietland talking about kind of the techniques that she uses and the things she's trying to represent in her pictures. And one of them was that the lines kind of represent breath. And I was like, oh my God, this is perfect. I'm a lung doctor. This piece is about breath. I liked it. It's perfect. Um, And so I got it and put it in my home and I love it. And since then, Emma's tried to She's been helping me like find other pieces, but it feels nice. Like my home feels much more finished now. Like it's just it felt sort of stark before, and now it's like homey. I don't know. So it's it's definitely been 
you know, kind of a new hobby, I guess, for me, which as adults, having hobbies is hard. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I like talking about art with Emma and um, having her show me pieces that she likes because she knows what my home looks like and what she thinks would work well in there. Um, so I don't know. It's been lovely, and she's a lovely new friend. So, Well, Emma Wilson is absolutely a lovely <laughs> yeah, person, yeah, and I've known is. her for a little while. And, <laughs> and, and she is. That's that's the excellent thing about Emma is that she's she gets to know you as a person. It's yeah. not just like, oh, this blue thing would look nice next to your pink thing. Yes, it's, exactly. You know, it's it's not just about the visual. It's like, mm, I think you would really, this would really feel good to you. Yeah. You know, this would really fit what what you want to have happen in your house. Yeah, and she's kind of nailed it. Like everything she brings over, I like. So it's become a new, wonderful, but both, and also expensive habit. So It is, it is an expensive habit. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good thing to spend your money on, though, I guess. So. Well, I think so. And, and we brought a Dietland in today behind us, and I have a Dietland at my house. And, uh, and I love Dietland, who's also just wonderful. So that's the thing. Yeah, she is. is she's to know the person. Such a lovely human. <laughs> yes, yes. And I think that um, for me, I... I, I don't know if this is true of all people in medicine or like highly educated people who just spend lots and lots of years in school is when there's something that you don't know, you're like, oh, but I've been to school a million years. Shouldn't I know this? Like, which is stupid because why would I know art? I didn't study art. I studied all this other stuff, but not art. But it can be really intimidating, as you say, to be like, okay, I don't know this. Who do I talk to now? It's, it seems hard to be able to truly appreciate something if you don't have like enough, like either knowledge about it or... I was like, do, do I like that? Am I supposed to just like the way it looks? Is that how this works? I just, it's so, it's such a strange thing when you're like sort of uneasy about like um, whether or not a piece of art like goes in your home and then you see something and it's perfect and you're like, oh, that's it. And it was like an effortless decision. So. Yeah. And it's also, it can be, I think art in particular can be a little intimidating because there's this idea like, oh, it's an investment. I'm investing in the future. It's like, well, Okay, like, what are you, the Met? I mean, you're not going to be selling your stuff to another museum someday. Exactly. You know, it's probably going to maybe go to a grandkid. I don't really know. Or whoever, <laughs> the, the neighbor at a yard sale, if you die penniless and alone. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. Like, but I mean, if you look at this and you think, well, I really don't know what the extrinsic value of this is, but I value it. It's my value. It's like going to a restaurant and being like, well, I don't really care if this is a Michelin-starred restaurant, but I, I like this I food. I like the food. Yeah. So I wonder why it is that we've gotten so far away from trusting our own selves and our own feelings about things like art, for example. I think there's, you know, there's sort of lots of jokes made about people standing in front of like a pure white canvas and being like, what do you see? You know, and, and it's like, I don't see anything. What do you mean? What do I see? And I feel like, you know, we sort of like make fun of people who wax on about something that's like not even present and or whatever. Um, but like once you sort of just let all that go and then see something and like it and commit to it and just do it, it's, I don't know, it's really lovely. And then like when she brought it to my house, I was like, oh, it's perfect. This fits perfectly. So it's actually moved around my house a little bit at this point. Oh, so Dietland's work is wandering your walls? Is that <laughs> it's what a I'm little hearing? bit, yeah. I'm trying to find like the, the sort of perfect spot uh, to put it. And I think I, I think I figured it out. I think it's over the couch. Okay. Um, I think it needs a matching piece, though, which I talked to oh, Dietland about. You oh. know, I think it's like a space that needs two pieces. I mean, it's like getting a dog. <laughs> you can't just have one. 
You have to have a dog at least needs two. a friend. Yeah, I don't yeah. have it. Yeah, no dogs for me. But yes, I'm no, like, you, maybe like you have art. Exactly, I have art. All you need, plants, really, exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, and I think that's true too. And to be clear, when we have art that comes into our home, often it wanders the walls. And it is. It's actually like a little pet. I'm like, we call it fostering. We bring our art in. We foster it. We think about adopting it. You know, we move it to place to place. And, and like, oh, this is its home. This is where it belongs. Yes, belong. yes. I mean, it, it becomes like a, a living thing that you actually interact with mm-hmm. in an interesting way. So, and that for me, I always enjoy that because that's sort of the non-doctor side of my mind. Like, because the doctor side of your mind, people, if they heard me talking about fostering art and letting it wander the walls, they'd be like, "Mm, (laughs) I think you need to get back to the science lady. But the non-doctor side, which actually I think is kind of the doctor side, I think that we all as doctors or people in the medical profession actually are very creative in spirit. We just, our brains have been trained in such linear ways that it's sometimes hard to kind of pull back and be like, no, actually we're problem solvers and we're creatives. And, you know, the human body falls apart in many ways, and sometimes you have to figure out the right way to take care of them. And you have a lot of knowledge and guidelines and things, but sometimes it does take a little bit of creativity on how you're going to make that person better. Yeah, and sometimes it takes the knowledge of people. And Mm -hmm. as long as I've been in medicine, I still don't know everything about people. Yeah. People are quirky. I mean, I think that's actually the most fascinating thing I have found yeah. in my entire medical career is that I like, I think I know something or someone and then somebody else shows up and I'm like, oh, you're a different version of that. Yeah. Huh, that's so fascinating. That's, I know. One disease will cause somebody terrible symptoms and they can have, you can see the exact same disease in a different person and they are still thriving. It's It's crazy, like coping skills and... Just, you know, adapting to disease and, you know, because, I mean, we're all falling apart from like age 25 to 86 and a half or whatever the life expectancy is of a human. But um, so it's just figuring out like what you can handle and what you can't and yes, fix the things you can. That's right. I mean, there is an inevitability about certain things. (laughs) And so it's more about like, okay, we're all like a bunch of rickety trains on the tracks, right? Just let's keep the wobbles to <laughs> yes, a minimum right. until we get to the end that's and right. try to sort of enjoy the view along the way. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I very much enjoyed our conversation today. Going back and forth from art to medicine and all the hither and yon. I didn't even get a chance to ask you about Italy, so I guess the next time you and I talk on air, we'll we'll talk about Italy. Which was lovely. Yes. It's because uh, that's the other thing, travel. Oh, my goodness, <sighs> a whole other topic. But yeah. So I guess the next one. next time we have like a medical or art related gathering, then everybody's going to come and ask you about it. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. is going to be what you do. Come talk to Dr. <laughs> Jennifer. I went on about it for weeks. So yeah. That, yeah. Okay. So that, you, you need to ask her about her Italian <laughs> trip. So um, I appreciate your spending your oh, time here with me today. It's Thanks really been a me. lot of fun. And um I usually say I encourage people to learn more about the art and the artists, but in your case, probably people don't want to learn that much about you because once the time they get to see you, maybe they're a little <laughs> they don't sick. Want to see me. But yeah. let's just say that you're proud that, you know, let's assume being assuming that you're very good at your job, that if somebody needs to see you, then you are the right person to see. I'm happy to see them. Yes, that sounds good. 
I'm Dr. Lisa Belisle, and I have been speaking with Dr. Jennifer Palminteri today. She is a pulmonary and critical care specialist, and like me, a novice fellow art lover. So I encourage you to maybe go to one of our Portland Art Gallery openings, and of course she will be there because she likes a party, from what I understand, and get to know Jen, and hopefully you won't need her services, but if you do, I think she's probably very good at what she does. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle. Thank you for watching and listening to Radio Maine. Thank you, Jen.